Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is July 13th, 2018, joined live and in person by the founder of the Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal. It is Friday, July 13th. It is Friday. Are you, are you a superstitious guy? Do you believe that stuff? I actually am, but I very rarely admit this. That, yeah. that's, that sort of thing. So what could possibly go wrong today? Nothing. Yeah, because everything's going smoothly. The president's on a fine trip abroad. Uh, domestic politics, that hearing is, is really reaching new heights of statesmanship really well, in, in the House. So it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm calm. I'm, I'm collected. Let's... Uh yeah, I should have uh, uh, I should have switched over to decaf earlier this morning. So let's talk. About what just what Bill Crystal? What just happened in England? I don't know. You know, they are our, one of our closest allies, of course. And in the past, in the good old in the old days, which are mostly the good old days from my point of view, American presidents were careful to go and be polite, and uh, especially to a, a prime minister who wants to be close to America, who's engaged in a complicated exit, attempted exit from the European Union, yeah. part of the rationale for which was to be closer to us, you know, less hampered by EU. And you try to give her a hand, presumably, and uh, instead he sort of, I don't know, he gave some interview, apparently, which uh, which he thinks is fake news, but they have the tape of the yeah, interview, don't that they? Is, that is the problem. He does this interview. It is on the record. It is on tape. They've been playing the tape all day in Great Britain. He has a press conference in Theresa May's presence, and he says it's fake news. It, it, this president's uh, ability or willingness to shape his own reality is truly extraordinary. But the question is, you know, you go to Great Britain and she's in a very, very perilous situation and his comments cannot be helpful for Theresa May. And, and nor for other politicians who want to be, and maybe they're not perfect and they've made mistakes, of course, who want to be pro-American. I'm very struck by that. And this is where I think a lot of the conservative kind of, well, you know, Trump's a little brash and it's a little chaotic, but he's pushing in the right direction. You know, he went there and he lectured them and they're going to get defense spending up. If you now are a politician in Germany who says a word about increasing defense spending at a little faster rate than they are, and theirs is very low. Maybe it's not such a bad thing that it's low, but we'll leave that aside for a minute. Um, You're going to get clobbered. You're just Trump's, you know, lapdog. He's making it harder for pro-American politicians, I would say really throughout Europe now, to pursue pro-American policies. Now, the bullying works a little bit. So you'll get some temporary increase in a little bit of defense spending. The NATO Secretary General will say, we've got to keep Trump, you know, from going right. totally nuts. But but over the medium term, and I think even the medium short term, like two years as opposed to two months, you know, these things uh, don't work. Uh, and so you end up weakening the alliance, weakening the U.S.-British relationship, making pro-American politicians, except for the really fringe right pro-Trump politicians, but normal conservatives over there, uh, very wary now of sounding too pro-American. It's very, I think it damages us quite a lot. And it's not just, but again, I, I what strikes me about it is um, some people say, well, this is just him being chaotic and not thoughtful. But he does believe in America first. And if you believe in America, sort of, to the degree he right. believes in anything, and if you believe in America first, you're not very friendly to alliances. And you kind of like the idea of you know America being alone and doing its thing and not worrying too much about the sensibilities of a bunch of Europeans who aren't don't quite agree with us on everything. Um, so, you know, once you start taking the position that it's more important for us to pop off and throw our weight around than manage a complicated alliance structure, this is the path you go down, and I, I worry very much about where that path ends. You know, and it is interesting. Somebody was asking the other day, you know, how, how did bashing NATO become an applause line at Trump rallies? And I said, you know, you're, to your point, this is hiding out in plain sight. 
right, what does America first mean? And you go back to the 1930s, uh, you know, the America first rhetoric, you know, uh, ripping the Europeans, mocking the Europeans, portraying them as uh, as 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 effete, um, was very much part of the American first. And isolationism has always been a recessive gene in you know the conservative movement or or in American politics in general. And he's clearly tapped into that that recessive isolationist approach. So it shouldn't be that remarkable. You know, you make the point about how this has made things more difficult for European politicians. I got the sense that that he wouldn't take yes for an answer. Uh, the the Europeans have generally committed to raising their defense spending to two percent of GDP, and they did that after being pressed by President Bush and by President uh, Obama. But the moment that they basically said yes, we're going to do it, and we're willing to give you credit for it, he then said no. I really want you to raise it to four percent of GDP, which even Donald Trump has to know is never going to happen. And it's, and it's more than we spend, and it's more than yeah. Donald Trump's budget calls for the U.S. to spend. And anyway, what does it all matter? I mean, that is, it would be better if they spent more on defense. It would take a tiny bit of burden off us, but the huge bulk of our defense spending is sort of irrelevant. The amount Estonia spends on defense, or even, frankly, France or Germany spends on defense, is mostly irrelevant to our defense spending. I mean, if you just look, right. we, we, are, we are a world power. We are busy you know, worrying about the North China Sea, and we're worrying about Putin. We're worrying about uh, the Middle East. Uh, you know, Europe can spend a little more and it might take a tiny right. burden off us and, I don't know, doing some peacekeeping in the Balkans and stuff. But you're talking a very tiny uh, delta there, a very tiny difference. And the idea, and I'm not against – I was in government. We pushed the Europeans to do mm-hmm. more. Uh, the other thing is they are democracies. I mean, and right. if you push them in the wrong way, some party now runs on – well, you know, let's send Donald Trump a message. We're not increasing defense spending. And you're just as likely to get that outcome. I mean, it's not as if if you bully an individual leader and he or she says, okay, 2.3%, well, but it's a parliamentary system or an elective system, and that can be reversed next year if someone runs on the opposite platform. It's like with Mexico, right? You elect a, a sort of an anti-American or anti-populist. Well, that, and that, could be, that could be a pattern. Yeah, no, I, I think this is where I think people are underestimating how much damage he could be doing. Of well, course, each of the individual little events, okay, it's a summit, it's a kind of a mess, the press conference is kind of a zoo, but that's not the issue. The issue is what cumulatively this does. Well, you uh, tweeted out a little while ago, weakening NATO, picking fights with allies, refusing to prefer democracies to dictatorships. These are not idiosyncratic bugs of Trump's foreign policy. These are features of an American first foreign policy, which Trump is increasingly, if somewhat chaotically, pursuing. And and I think that's kind of a key point because there is this sort of tendency to say, okay, you know, this is just sort of the glandular response of, you know, Trump being angry or, um, you know, pursuing some sort of personal vendetta. But uh, there, there is, there is sort of a, a larger theme here that we've been yeah, discussing. I think so. And I mean, I, you know, you don't want to overdo how much Trump has thought these things through and right. how much he's read about America first foreign policy and so forth. But I, I think there is something there that's more than just, you know, he's exasperated by leader X or he doesn't understand uh, issue Y. And I, and I think you see it pretty consistently at this point. Um, and I mean, I look, if, and this is where I think if we want to have a serious national debate, about NATO, about alliance structures, if we want to think about a world in which we aren't constrained by alliances and committed to alliances, that's a legitimate thing for someone to stand up and say, and we should have that debate in Congress, and we should have it in uh, on, on podcasts like this and have it across the country. But that's not Trump style. So it, it's, there's a lot of undermining of the alliances. But then, oh, no, but I'm committed to it. He doesn't quite have the courage of his convictions in certain ways. I think he's also, another thing I would say is, we probably, people underestimate a little bit, 
how much he was constrained by McMaster, mm-hmm. H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, from the after the first month until about two months ago. Uh, Gary Cohn, who was his top economic advisor, a more traditional free trade person, uh, they're gone. Uh, others are there who uh, are less willing to stand up to Trump or, or may agree with him in some ways. And I think we're, you know, the interesting thing about Trump was the argument of a lot of people who were more relaxed about him, let's say, than you and I were, was, you know, he'll he's going to come to Washington. He'll figure out how it works. He'll get educated. It'll be, won't be the style you like, Bill or Charlie, but, you know, it'll be okay. And that's been true in some areas. I'd say the courts is the most yeah, obvious we'll get case. To that in a while. But, but in other, it seems to me in foreign policy and in trade policy and some other areas, uh, it's not working out that way it's more the opposite he feels emboldened he feels he knows what's happening his base it turns out will stick with him no matter what and so his attitude is no matter what well what about the argument now though that that you need to separate what the president says from what he does so for example in nato you know he comes in there and he throws you know one hand grenade after another but ultimately then signs on to the communique to the to the strategy and of course people will say well hey we just did that's just donald trump that's what he says you have to look what he's doing the 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 even the rhetoric between I mean, the president and and Mike Pompeo is there? They, they you, you can hardly imagine that they're coming from the same administration. So, is there a legitimate point that that we should simply ignore the president's language and simply focus on what he does? I mean, I I, th- I hope we can Mike Pompeo and others can constrain what he does, and I hope it, we look back on these four years and say, man, the language was irresponsible. Some of the actions were tending towards irresponsible, but it kind of got constrained by either his aides or the system or Congress, and we end up more or less in a reasonable place. I hope that ends up being the the outcome, but you're running a big risk and rhetoric has consequences. Uh, conservatives used to say ideas have consequences. Uh, and again, what you do when you convey this attitude towards allies, when you go abroad and do this, it, it has an effect on public opinion over there. It has an effect on, ally, on allied governments, sense of, can I count on these people? It has an effect on adversaries. Maybe we'll sort of skate through. Maybe America has so much, you know, if you want to think of it this way, it's, uh, I don't know, like a, a city that has a bad mayor or a corporation that has a bad CEO, you know, you can get away with two, three, four years because there's so much infrastructure under him in a way that's preserving a reasonable order. And I think that's true. I mean, America has a domestically and abroad, there's a lot of generations have invested a lot to kind of create structures that can't just be uh, blown away with, you know, one speech or one, you know, flighty press conference. So in that respect, I think it's a fair question, at least to say, a fair, fair caution to say, let's not overreact to one press conference. On the other hand, president's a powerful job. Four years is a long time. And I worry that the erosion can be a little more fundamental than the Trump defenders uh, well, hope, or that I hope. I mean, I, I really, and also, sure. you know, it is one of these, it's like, oh, what's, what's the joke about going bankrupt? You go bankrupt slowly, uh, and then all of a sudden, and then suddenly, you know, and then all, then all at once. Well, right? that's my concern, is and that you, you keep draining the reservoir, and you know, at some point you, you you just assume that it's always there, and then it's and then it's gone. I mean, it clearly, you know, watching his base cheer the attacks on NATO, you're undermining support for our allies. Uh, you are sowing doubts about our reliability, um, you know, with, with our key allies, particularly in Europe. And then then, of course, there are the you know the Putins and the, and the Kim Jong Uns of the world who are watching this very very closely, and have to be emboldened. Um, on a scale of one to ten, how concerned are you about what's going to happen with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin next week? 
You know, I'm pretty concerned. I mean, Trump is also capable of crossing you up a little and therefore not saying terrible things to Putin and maybe even remonstrating with him about some of the things he's done. But the attitude going in has been, well, of course, I'll raise the issue of the election interfering, but he's just going to deny it. And what can I do? Right. Well, what what Congress thought you could do was have sanctions, and what you could do is have a more thoroughgoing uh, approach of trying to confront and check uh, and deter Putin. And again, you don't quite see the consequences of that right away, you know, but right. but where that leads you a year or two from now, what consequences others in Europe? I do think the rise of uh, a not very pro-American right in places like Hungary and uh, and Poland to some degree. Which are deeply uh, authoritarian, right. deeply anti-democratic. And the merging of a right and left in a place right. like Italy, uh, that's not just, I mean, some of that was happening anyway, right. but... Trump makes that easier to happen. And he and he's clearly wants to provide some sort of moral support for it. My concern with, with the meeting with Vladimir Putin is if you've watched in the past, the president, when he has these private face-to-face meetings, is, is not the master negotiator that I think he was billed at. I mean, even when you talk about meeting with Democrats on immigration, you know, he sits there and he gives away the store. And then, of course, afterwards, people will, you know, come to him and say, Mr. President, you can't say that. You can't do that. Imagine sitting alone in a room with somebody as wily and savvy and ruthless as Vladimir Putin. I mean, I could certainly imagine Vladimir Putin saying, you know, Mr. President, you and I, you know, we have this relationship. Let's put everything in the past behind us. Let's put this whole Crimea, Ukraine, Syria, um, election meddling, and let's just go forward. And you can certainly imagine the, the president basically say, yeah, why not move forward, which then again ratifies all of Vladimir Putin's crimes and attacks on, on this country and, and, and his, you know, his bad actions around the world. You know, Trump said today, I think it was, that he inherited a bad hand in a lot of parts of the world. And I agree with that, actually. Mm-hmm. But he's making it worse. And so I, for me also, what the real worry is, if we had had strong foreign policy for the last eight years and suddenly Trump shows up, you know, there's a lot of reservoirs, to use your metaphor yeah. earlier, that you're starting off with a pretty high water level and you could afford to let it draw down some. Obama already is depleted a lot of confidence in the U.S., the red line, the defense cuts, the withdrawal from Iraq, and uh, so forth. Um, You add on that, it's a very different kind of weakness, but you add sort of Trump's kind of America first weakness to Obama's kind of, you know, we love the U.N., we're not going to throw our weight around weakness. Twelve years, I mean, that's a long time for America to take a sort of sabbatical from from world leadership. And this system does not just maintain itself any more than a corporation can just chug along forever on autopilot or a city or, or any other, you know, uh, organization. And that's what worries me the most. Now, if Pompeo and Mattis and these guys can constrain him, and I saw in the paper this morning online somewhere that, you know, after the NATO meeting, defense officials, I think up to and including the Secretary of Defense, were feverishly calling right. their counterparts to reassure them. You know, but the f- first or second time that happens, you think, okay, yeah, that's reasonable. The fifth time, the eighth time, at some point, you just say, this is ridiculous. I mean, okay. well, let's switch gears and talk about uh, the Supreme Court nomination. You know, um, you and I w- were, of course, w- well known <laughs> as, as as Trump skeptics, and of course, a lot of the the Trump supporters and rationalizers, such as are are now basically turning on Trump critics and saying, you know, will you admit that you were wrong? Because, you know, here is a president who clearly, you know, has made two very, very strong appointments. Does this vindicate the supporters of Donald Trump, the people who said, okay, he may not be ideal, but it was a binary choice. Hillary Clinton would have appointed uh, horrifically bad judges. And at least you have Gorsuch and probably Kavanaugh. 
it's a plus. I'm happy about it. Uh, I, people have to make up their own minds whether the trade-off here of the weakening of the international order, the rule of law, and everything else is worth it. But anyway, that's a theoretical question. I, I applaud the appointment. I, the Weekly Standard obviously is, mm-hmm. has applauded it, and we will urge Republican senators and Democratic senators to vote to confirm Kavanaugh as we would have if he had appointed any of the other finalists. So I don't, I don't think it's that impossible to be pro-Kavanaugh and anti-Trump. And... Uh, you know, we can endlessly debate, uh, I guess, the theoretical issue of where the world would be if Hillary Clinton were president. I still think going for other Republican presidents would have made uh, very similar appointments, obviously. And so going forward, I still would prefer a Republican president who would make the same appointments. And you get a lot of other good things as well. I would say one, one point about it, though, that strikes me, and I think you and I have both written about this in a certain mm-hmm. way, is um, how did Brett Kavanaugh come to exist? I mean, why is Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. circuit? Well, because for 40 years... Uh, there's been an intellectual effort to fight against progressive living constitution jurisprudence and revive originalism and textualism and constitutionalism. Uh, that happened with a co- courageous individuals alone, really, at Bob Bork and Nino Scalia and a few others at law schools and others in the academy and at think tanks. Uh, then the organizationally, the Federal Society was founded in the early 80s. That provided a little more of an infrastructure. A heck of a lot of people of early, in the early generation, we don't even think of their names anymore. A lot of them were Tired mm-hmm. from you know appellate courts also did important work that are other generations of law students, clerks, lawyers, judges, and that's what led to Brett Kavanaugh. It's the success of the old-fashioned traditional conservative movement, you know, which took a lot of time, which was highly intellectual, the kind of thing Trump and Trump supporters would score. What is what are these people writing? Eighty-two page law review articles on criticizing some liberal. You know, this is about power. It's not about intellectual things, and we should just ridicule them or demagogue them or just be populists. Yeah, I mean, Trumpism and, really was a rejection of much of that intellectual yes, tradition. But this is and, a, and infrastructure and establishment, right? And now they're taking advantage of it. I'm glad Trump is. Yeah. I'm glad Trump is. But it's an infrastructure that never would have been created. If American conservatism were Trumpy conservatism, well, that's why I described years this ago. earlier. Is this is the least Trumpian thing that he has done because right. it doesn't have the dysfunction, it doesn't have the chaos, um, because he's outsourced it to to people who have, as you point out, have been working on this for you know for literally for and, and for, de- for decades. And in Kavanaugh's personal case, just to take him as an instance, yeah. but the same would be true of most of these other judges who are on the list. He's someone who went to. to elite law schools, mm-hmm. took his work seriously, clerked for Supreme Court justices, uh, studied issues, worked in a Bush, in his case, in the Bush White House, was then on an appellate court, everything that Trump people have contempt for, you know? Right. Uh, and that's why he will be a very good Supreme Court you, you justice. You could certainly imagine him being the kind of person that, a, that President Jeb Bush would have appointed, or Marco Rubio, or Ted Cruz, or Scott Walker. And I think that's where, if you're intellectually honest about it, no matter what you think about uh, Donald Trump, the reality is, is that uh, I think all all conservatives would have rather enthusiastically supported a nomination of Brett Kavanaugh from any Republican president. Yeah, and I think people like you and I can then say, I mean, I think it's a legitimate difference of opinion about the so-called the price we pay for Trump, that a, a Trump who's constrained by conservatism and by the Republican Party in many ways, um, you know, we could either, some people would say, yeah, we can live with it and maybe he gets a few more additional voters and it's not going to cause too much damage in the world scene and so forth. And so uh, let's just kind of grudgingly say it's okay for now versus I think some of us mm-hmm. who think we're not so sure it's okay for now. But those are both very different from positions from the you know, uh, Trump triumphalism, uh, the exaltation of Trump, the celebration of the changes he's bringing to the kind of conservatism that produced Brett Kavanaugh. And one of the most distressing things of the last years, uh, awful lot of people we know have moved from 
what I might call you know, very reluctant Trump support with mm-hmm. the very open eyes of, you know, very clear eyed kind of sense of, well, I think we can figure out how to live with this, but it's, of course, not great. But let's figure out how to constrain him and check him to just rooting him on. Yeah. And that is really dangerous. If, if, the, if It's one thing to have, you know, again, if you want to use the metaphor, it would be like having someone here in the office of the Weekly Standard who's kind of a wild, loose cannon and a bit of a jackass and stuff, but he's constrained by the other 20 people here, right. and his damage to the Weekly Standard as a whole is limited. Uh, not that there is anyone like that, of course. Uh, as opposed to just he, he changes the Weekly Standard, and the Weekly Standard becomes, you know, a bullying, a you know, ridiculous thing. place. And, and that's really what the danger of Trump, you look at these House Republicans, you look at I what's happening on a bunch of issues, and you, that's that's the real concern. Well, that was, of course, my my big surprise. Maybe it should not have been a, a surprise because I do think there were a lot of Republicans who very reluctantly voted for him because it was a binary choice, but but didn't have any illusions. And you know, many of them were not tribal, but I think we also saw the power of transactionalism. You know, all the the Paul Ryan's of the world who basically just made a deal, but. There's no question about it that there is a large number of people who are – you describe them as triumphalist. I mean they, they, these are the, the, the tribal uh, cult of personality folks and that does change uh, you know, American conservatism. That was on display I thought quite a bit uh, at that House hearing yesterday with, uh, with, with Peter Strzok. Now, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not carrying any water for an FBI agent who behaved as recklessly as he did or did as much damage. But that was an extraordinary performance and I think the technical term, um, the, the, the Greek term for – what that was 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 pretty much a shit show, wasn't it? I mean, it was it, it was just a that? it was just a complete circus, all, all over the top. What, what, what were you thinking as you were watching? You know, Trey Gowdy and Bob Goodlatte, and I mean, it was Louis Gohmert. Yeah, and then the was Gosar from Arizona. Oh. You know, I'm a dentist, so I have a deep understanding of yeah body language or body language, whatever it was. I yeah. mean, you really can't make it up. Um, Most dentists, the body language they see is you're lying there trying to avoid pain, yeah, right? Exactly. I, mean, what, I think the body language is like, gee, I wish I weren't here, but right, yes, exactly. I've got to go through this for the, yeah. you know, I, I don't quite know why that's what you, what you learn from that, but. I mean, it's really uh, it was it was terrible. It was an embarrassment, and again, without you know justifying uh, some of the things the FBI agent did or, or seems to have done in his personal life and all that. I mean, it's just uh, ridiculous. It's not the way one is supposed to have a serious oversight hearing, obviously. And I think it ended up backfiring in the practical sense that uh, he seemed more impressive, whatever one's qualms about certain things about him than, than the people who were interrogating him, and not they didn't even bother interrogating him, just yelling at him, really. You mean that that was. What was what was striking, and as I said at one point, I was watching this thing. It was almost like the congressman know there's the camera, there's a camera on because they were just. It was histrionic. It was over the top. I think a number of them did serious damage to their long term reputations. I mean, when you have the chairman of the committee, Bob Goodlatte, threatening an FBI agent with 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 contempt for refusing to divulge information about an ongoing counterintelligence investigation after he had been told by the FBI counsel not to answer the question, you realize that, that this train is off the tracks. And the FBI directors appointed by Donald Trump, the FBI is part of the Trump administration. Uh, obviously, if, if they have real concerns, the good luck can pick up the phone and talk to the FBI director, the attorney general, and say, this you shouldn't give him this guidance. But it's the administration of his own party. It's not yeah. like the Clinton thing where you have Republican Congress and a Democratic administration, and you could say, well, they're really stonewalling us or something like that. If you say they are, 
then you have to be saying that the Trump administration is full of people whose purpose is to uh, cover up, I suppose, for... for pe- and, of course, the whole thing's ludicrous at some level. Did the FBI help or hurt Trump in the 2016 Yeah, there's no, really election? no question about there's that. There's not really empirically I mean, a question about yeah. that. And I mean, whatever you think, again, of this fellow's behavior... They didn't leak stuff right. prior to the election, which is what they would have wanted to do if they wanted to damage which, which Trump. Which is still remarkable in retrospect. When you go back that there was this ongoing investigation and the New York Times writes a story saying, yeah, there's 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 nothing there. Would the election have turned out differently had they announced that they were investigating Trump and the Trump campaign? We know what the announcement about the investigation of Hillary Clinton did to that campaign. This is I, among the many depressing things about you know the current political scene. I, I actually do understand the conservatives, the Republicans who are transactional in terms of, okay, we're going to go along because we're going to get deregulation. We're going to get tax cuts. We're going to get the judges. I understand that rational calculation. But what you saw yesterday in the House Judiciary Committee is something completely different because there's no conservative principle at stake in trying to undermine an ongoing investigation by a man who was universally respected not that long ago. The willingness to basically be part of this obstruction of justice um, is is truly remarkable and can't be defended on the basis of conservative gains. Yeah, and that man obviously you're referring to is Robert Mueller, right. who as soon as he heard about the tax uh, separated Mr. Strzok from the investigation. So, again, it's sort of a ra- – and nothing Mueller is going to discover or present is going to depend on anything that this guy did actually. Uh, you know, he'll, it'll have to stand or fall by itself, whatever evidence he presents. So the normal conservative way is to say, okay – I mean, if they want to investigate what people did wrong in 2016, obviously they can do that, I suppose, if they're Congress. But it's unclear what consequences they're going to draw from one agent's text messages, you know, at this point. The ongoing investigation – this is all part, though, really yeah. – an effort to undermine, as you say, the Mueller investigation, which uh, has seems to have been conducted with great uh, care and dignity and lack of leaks. And again, we'll all be able to judge what he reports. And if, to the degree that cases go to trial, they right. go to trial and there's a jury. And to the degree there's a report to Congress, Congress can then decide. So it's all just kind of delegitimizing of it. It's not an authentic, you know, oversight or something. But I want to, maybe since we probably should close, I think your point, the transactional point is very important. But, but the way I'd put it is this. People begin with a transactional – this is true in life in general. You begin by doing certain things you probably shouldn't do because it's transactional, but you're right. going to get something. But then it's a very slippery slope. You know, There's a reason that ethicists and moralists and religious leaders for 2,000, 4,000 years have sort of warned against being too transactional in your life, right? Because you sort of – The price just keeps getting higher and higher. The price gets higher and higher. And that's the thing that and I've said about – you start believing it and then Faustian you forget – You forget – yeah, exactly. Yeah. You forget it was transactional. And then right. you – because it's too hard to keep telling yourself kind of – Look, I, I'm doing this in a very hard-headed way. A few people can maintain that, but an awful lot of people, it's step by step, and suddenly it's it's an outrage that anyone's criticizing Donald it's, Trump. So it's the it's the gateway drug. Anti-anti-Trumpism and transactionalism are the gateway drug. Drug. Um, Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. We've we're almost halfway through Friday the thirteenth so far. We'll we'll see what ha- we'll we'll see what happens later later in the day. I appreciate it. Exactly. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again.